Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Steven. Welcome to Tales from the Fast Graveyard, where we talk to employees at tech companies that are in the middle of the bell curve, not going out of business, but definitely not hitting the big time. The Fast Graveyard is a purgatory populated by companies that have made it to annual revenues in the 30 to 50 million range, but can't get to the next level, which is pretty impressive outside of Silicon Valley, but frowned upon here. We interview folks in various roles about their experience working at companies like this. We're looking to see what common themes emerge across industries and roles. Today, we'll spend time with our friend Al, who will talk about his time working on infrastructure at a company we will call GTSI that built technology for large and complex systems. Before we talk to Al, Jake, do you understand what infrastructure at a company that builds technology for large, complex systems means? So I understand each of the words individually, but I have no idea what they mean when you string them together like that. Yeah, so the way I think about it, which is is very similar to kind of how we think about DevOps today, which is another uh, occupation that I know I am also very confused about. I imagine you're confused about it as well. But what I imagine is for the infrastructure folks, since Al worked at GTSI back in 2009 before uh, all the cloud providers for hosting were well-known and kind of the de facto standard is the person who had to manage all the servers also had to deal with the physical servers themselves of actually maintaining and uh, making sure they're up and running at the end of the day as well, as along with the software on said servers. Again, again, I'm understanding a lot of the words you're saying, but I really don't understand what any of them mean. And this kind of goes along with, you know, over the years I've worked with a lot of DevOps folks, and they're always kind of like the, the cool cousins of the engineering department. Uh, like they're always super friendly, always willing to help out. If you have a conversation with them about things outside of work, they usually have very interesting takes on things. But for the most part, I never understand a single thing that they're talking about. And I just pretty much nod and hope they don't realize that I'm an idiot. Um, and that's been my experience uh, working with DevOps folks over the years. Have you had any better luck? Well, you know, Jake, I think your your experience with DevOps folks aligns with mine. I always feel like they're definitely the cool cousin of the engineering team of, you know, traditionally engineers are usually... They say they don't like to work with people, and usually they have a bad rap about not really wanting to help people or not technical in some ways. We're definitely DevOps people. Although you might not understand what they're saying, they do desperately want to help you out and help you get your job done, which I really appreciate about DevOps uh, folks and infrastructure engineering. I think the one funny story I have about infrastructure is I was at a company and uh, the DevOps uh, lead was presenting about how he made this change to their cloud hosting provider, and it was going to save the company 60 grand from their current bill to the next year. So like a 50% decrease in cost. And then I asked him after the meeting, so why was cost so high in the first place? And he said it was a mistake that he made earlier this year, which is why it was so high. So I appreciate his honesty and I appreciate he's able to take his job and actually prove hard value in that way, which I think was pretty funny. And he also recognized how funny that was, which I think speaks to how friendly DevOps folks are. But, you know, you were probably the only person in the company who realized that, that it meant that he had made a mistake earlier. And that's the beauty of DevOps. Like, no one has any idea what they're doing. They'd be costing the company millions of dollars, and no one would know. And then they'd say, oh, look, I saved us millions of dollars, and they're heroes. Amazing. I wish I was able to provide that every at every job I, I worked at for any mistake I made. Yeah, no, it's funny how DevOps, you know, they have such hard values that they can focus on of, like, they truly know the cost every month of how much the servers are, and they can look at optimizing those values or correcting mistakes they've made in the past, where very few jobs offer that level of cost management that's very much you can turn the dials and actually see the direct result the next month because there's less 
fuzzy people involved or people problems. It's very just hard technology and software that you can fine tune, which I have to find, imagine is very satisfying for them. Uh, I think that's a good point because like in product management, you have to, you know, you, you release some feature and then maybe six months later, it leads to some sales, but it, it's very difficult to tie what you've done with, um, with the, the growth of the company. And so it's very difficult to put in any uh, revenue around what you're actually doing. So that must be a very fulfilling part for, for DevOps folks that they can have that connection. And with that, Al, welcome to the SaaS Graveyard. You're welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Um, so before we get into your time at GTSI, can you tell us a little bit about your career leading up to that point? Sure. Um, I, I had been working for about 10 years in uh, litigation support, so uh, a little bit different than uh, pure technology, but uh, we were doing uh, technology services for, you know, all kinds of other things, of, uh, you know, all kinds of companies and uh, corporate you know, uh, legal teams and, you know, state agencies, Department of Justice. So it was a big shift to go into a startup life. It was uh, it was really fun. And I met a lot of great people. Did you decide to leave and go to GS- GTSI specifically or were you just looking for a, a change in career broadly? Uh, no, the, uh, it was really by choice. It was uh, mostly by uh, this was 2008, September to December 2008 timeframe. So uh, all of the companies that had uh, kind of uh, acquired and done these uh, leverage buyouts uh, at the place that I was at um, kind of went up in a big uh, dumpster fire. So I had to find a new place to work and uh, pretty quickly. And the first uh, first places to actually start hiring well at that time were, were startups. So that's what I chose to go for. How specifically did you first hear of GTSI? Uh, Craigslist, actually, that was a time that, that Craigslist was still was a pretty reliable way to find uh, opportunities. When you started, you know, reaching out uh, in the interview process, what were your first impressions of the company? My first impression was that there were a lot of very smart people who knew a lot about, the, you know, the different aspects of hardware and software, and so the kind of technology solutions that they were building, you know, kind of com- encompassed a, you know. A wide swath of different uh, technologies and uh, kind of studies of you know science, math, and other things that I w- was interested in. Okay, and what what exactly was the interview process? Did you meet with a lot of people, or just one or two? Um, it was two people. So um, there were, there had been somebody that had been working as a contractor, and uh, so I had interviewed with the contractor and then uh, another one of the founders that. Um, I would be trying to take their workload from. So that was really it, pretty much it. And was it then a pretty easy process just going through two people or were there were they difficult questions? Um, the contractor, you know, they, I was pretty comfortable with all of the other things that, but the founder, he was really smart. And so he was also very humble. And so it was actually really great, but he asked me a lot of hard questions. So although I felt like it was, he was really just kind of seeing, you know, the extent of my knowledge. So, but in a really not conflicting or kind of, uh, you know, accusatory way, but just kind of have a way of like, what can I depend, what can we depend on for from you? And so I thought it was, uh, you know, although it was hard, it was, you know, it was a lot of, because uh, they were doing so many things, they were trying to just place people and so that they could, you know, get them the most, most of their strengths. When you were interviewing with them, were there other companies you were interviewing at the same time? Oh, yeah. I think there were two other places that I had been interviewing. 
And when you finally made the decision to go with GTSI, what made you more excited about that than the other opportunities? Um, the amount of the amount of technologies that I would being able that I was being able to touch and uh, play with on, on an everyday level. So just like the, the overall the, the learning opportunities. Yeah, yeah, because they were not only doing you know real hardware solutions, but they were doing you know quite a, di- a few different builds in or, or a, f- a few different uh, you know boards and uh, put ups for you know the technology solution that they were building. Now, so. Um, in the interview process, is there anything that you wish you had asked to know more about the company before you'd started? Yeah, a bit more. And, you know, so, uh, you know, of course, this is advice for every company. And that's if you get benefits, you know, if you get, you know, shares of a company, just with with any of those agreements, uh, you know, have uh, get good legal representation who can really give you the ins and outs of what those, you know, what any of those benefits mean for you, uh, for, for your taxes and for uh, in the event that uh, things happen in the company, whether they're, you know, being sold, acquired, whatever happens. But, you know, really getting an idea of if you're given, you know, shares or options or any other benefits by the by a company, you know, just make sure that you understand what those things are. And that that was something I didn't under, that I didn't understand at the time, and I kind of got my misunderstanding, you know, kind of you know left me with in a not a bad financial decision, but I could have made a better, much better financial decision for myself with more insight. Right, like when you get the offer, you're just it's sort of like, well, that's so far off in the distance, and they give you this number that like you're going to have ten thousand options or shares or RSUs, and you just sort of think like in your mind, at least in my mind, I would think, well. That means if this company makes good, then I'm going to get some piece of it. But I, I never dig in either to see, like, what does this actually mean? Like, if we got sold for X million, what is my share of that going to be? And I think, uh, like what you just said, like, I never do that homework to find out what does this really mean? So you accept the job and um, you know, part of it, you said, you know, you, were, you had to look for a job just uh, due to the state of the economy at the time. But you were also very excited for, um, like, learning all these new things. What, can you describe sort of your your first month and just sort of what you were learning, what you were doing? Yeah, so they were kind of really trying to home grow uh, a a really kind of enterprise solution for a very complicated piece of technology, and so I um, I was really helping set up a lot of the infrastructure parts of that. So, uh, uh, but with as little shoestring as possible. So I was setting up major parts of networks and you know compute infrastructure with you know a shoestring in a closet so it was really fun to get really amazing numbers and you know some really big you know compute things together on you know a small little budget and you know uh, also run them in a closet but there's a there's a flip side of that that's everything is so unreliable and you know when people are actually depending on these systems makes your job as a you know infrastructure engineer kind of much more of a challenge to you know maintain a a, a reliable system when you know it, within data centers and other things they have all of backup power supplies and generators and you know air condition you know hvac systems and all of that and you know a closet has none of that so all of that reliability you have to kind of build in yourself, which is an interesting challenge, especially with, you know, as little money as possible. So those were the kinds of things that I was doing in my first month. 
and okay. you know is just trying to get it, get it all set up and you know reliable and try to help all of the engineers be m- most effective. And, and in that first month, did you have much guidance? You know, the small start, or did you pretty much have to figure out everything on your own? Um, there was a, a fair amount of guidance as far as like you know here are the projects that we need help with. But then how to solve them, I was given quite a amount of, you know, creativity. And of course, I would want to, you know, I would talk to because I was reporting directly to one of the founders. So, you know, I would just, you know, go over, you know, here's my, you know, brief overview of a plan. You know, we'd talk about it and then I was left to, you know, pretty much go and do as, you know, as as needed. So I was given a lot of, you know, freedom. So it was a it was a really, you know, great setup as far as you know, working and then learning from some really smart people. It sounds that that first month and you're pretty, it sort of lived up to what your vision was when you accepted the offer. Were there any things that gave you pause or any kind of red flags you saw in that that first month? I should have just asked a few more questions about the structure of the company. How many founders are there? Uh, Ways that the, you know, company is structured, like, you know, LLC, uh, C-Corp, all of, you know, just those a little bit of those details to help you who the founder is. Cause actually I met a founder and I felt so embarrassed because I say, he walks up to my desk and he says, you know, hello, you know, and I say, hi, what, what do you do here? <laughs> he's a founder. I felt I would crawl out of my skin. Right. So how many founders were there then? There were three. There's the one you'd met on the interview. And that was the one that you were uh, sort of reporting to and then there were these two others, one who you met after a few weeks on the job. Yep, yep. Did he take that good naturedly or Oh yeah, he, everyone was very, you know, good natured about the whole thing, but I think one thing I just want to clarify, are we talking about a literal closet, Al? Yeah. That's great. I love it. I just want to clarify that for some of our listeners on whether that was a metaphor or whether we're talking about a real closet. No, yeah. <laughs> Putting lots of infrastructure in a small closet leads to some interesting problems. Just with with heat or with uh, heat specifically, yeah. I I had I had an a, a small air conditioner unit ice up in the middle of winter. Hey, I'm sure the air conditioning company appreciated the sale. Home Depot loved the the additional sale of the one hundred and seventy nine dollar window unit that I went and picked up and replaced it with. So of course we had you know getting the infrastructure set up in the closet. Uh, can you tell us more kind of like after that fact, you know, you were there for, for several years, how did your workday change? Was it just always dealing with this closet situation or did, did your role expand or did you focus on other things? As oh well? yeah. There was lots of other technology solutions that I had to get, uh, you know, kind of help with. There was, you know, uh, we were supplying, you know, all kinds of technology so- solutions to a number of other, you know, kind of downstream, you know, and they were using this technology in the field. So there were, you know, Return RMA units, so there were some returns uh, merchandise that we had to go through, test, fix up. There and then there was some, you know, research and development of some of the other things that we were integrating. So and you know, I was uh, developing some of the plans for like, you know, the burn-in tests and some of the other, you know, uh, kind of quality engineering and kind of systems engineering, kind of mm-hmm. uh, all mushed into, to, you know, also some, you know hardware stuff. So it was, it, what was fun about it, it, it was, you know, a little bit of everything. And, you know, you got to work with some really smart people who were very specific in what they could do. So, you know, I was more of, I was more of a generalist kind of trying to 
you know, mm -hmm. see things to, you know, completion. Got it. Now, of course, this is back, back when everybody was still going to offices all the time. Can you describe the vibe of the office from the second you entered the building and kind of while you sat at your desk, what was going on? Oh, see, that was kind of the cool part is like, you know, um, uh, this was in the day that, you know, um, there was a certain point between, um, you know, cubicles and the open office plan. And we, uh, we had cubicles and the, the, the vibe of the place was almost like a, a beehive. You could feel like just the buzz of it, things that people were doing and everyone was excited. And, you know, you could feel this like hum of, you know, really smart people, really energized about the things that they were working on specifically that day. So it was a lot of like really cool environment to be around and, you know, just listen to those, you know, extremely smart PhD people, you know, talk about something that they were really jazzed about. So it, it was a, it was a really great office environment. Did you have a direct manager while you were there or was it pretty uh, low on the hierarchy? It was there. a pretty flat organization structure because everyone, yeah, usually there was only like everyone kind of had their, you know, fire line of which they were doing things. And then there was basically only like one level of management. So it was just mm -hmm. like, you know, the founders and then everyone below them. So it was really flat as far as that went. So, and I think that was pretty effective because, you know, there really wasn't a whole lot of oh, you got to get approval for this thing mm -hmm. or you want to try a new thing with this that's going to cost, you know, a few thousand bucks or something else. You know, it's just like, oh, OK, well, it's worth it. So go do it. You know, you could get an answer immediately for all the things that you wanted to do for the business as opposed to, you know, kind of going through the, you know, red tape of management and change requests and TPS reports or whatever. What's the thing that you did at GTSI that you're most professionally proud of? building and leveraging commodity hardware to build, you know, a system that mm -hmm. for the, for the time that for the, the price for performance, I think was pretty, you know, pretty amazing. Now, what was your most memorable day there? Uh, I think my, okay. I think one of my most memorable, memorable days was when, so we were, uh, working at a, uh, at one of the buildings and, you know, I, as, as a infrastructure engineer, I had to kind of be like a very intimate with every single part of that building. Mm -hmm. And so one of the days that we, um, I had to be doing something with, um, some, uh, radio equipment up on the, the roof. So we had to, you know, make a roof day and a roof work day. And it was just uh, where we had to attach a bunch of things to the roof. And and there was it was just a really cool day of working in the sun with a, a bunch of really cool people doing some, you know, really just fun radio stuff. And kind of one of those memorable days where it's like everything goes, you know, smoothly enough. You know, I was in a completely new, you know, I'd never been on the roof before. And so seeing, the you know, seeing a place from a new perspective and then also you know getting some really cool work done with radios it was a really cool cool thing to happen and i would say one of the worst days is the day that i had to you know leave and you know quit mm -hmm. al what was the best perk uh, at tgsi um 
The best perk was access to really smart people who were very humble. So I learned more about making electronics, things with metal, uh, cars, radio stuff. And I learned so much about each one of these things from, from myself and from my own hobby projects because of these amazing people who were just humble and didn't want to, you know, they wanted to share all this knowledge. They didn't care about, you know, oh, you don't know these things or, you know, oh, they didn't have some kind of ego about like, oh, I'm trying to be the best about it. They were just mm -hmm. very amazingly, you know, kind and humble about the knowledge that they had. And th they were so smart. So I would say that was one of the best perks is just being able to talk daily with just amazingly smart people who are very good at what they do. And what was the most ridiculous thing uh, the company ever did, whether just a ridiculous budget for something or, or know, team outing, team outing. Yeah. Um, I would say some of the ridiculous things were some of how some pieces of hardware that would cost so much money seemed to just fall into our hands huh. and it would just be like, Oh, it fell off of a truck. And I'm like that costs half of a house that doesn't just fall off of a truck but okay let's play with it so <laughs> <laughs> another benefit <laughs> yeah but also kind of ridiculous you know <laughs> was there was there are you insinuating something nefarious was going on or just like there was a lot of serendipity at this company no there was a lot of serendipity and there was a lot of like tech and it wasn't really nefarious at all it was just that you know, people with connections to, you know, other, you know, they had friends that were, would work over at other places that, you know, were working on new, interesting things. And so, you know, oh, hey, can I borrow a demo unit for a week? And so it wasn't anything nefarious or anything like that. It was just, you know, it was just ridiculous. It just, it, you know, when it showed up and it was like the short story was like that, it was kind of like ridiculous. But it was very fun. You know, when did you, Al, when did you start, did you have a good sense of kind of how the company was doing during your time there? Because of course you're, you're building large enterprise solutions. I imagine there's not like a, we're seeing revenue go up month over month or anything like that. How did you get a sense of how the company was doing over your time there? I mean, so that's the other thing that I would advise people to do is that we all get kind of caught up in mm -hmm. how, in, in our own work. And really, I think, you know, it's really important to, you know, every week or two, you know, talk to somebody who really knows all of the accounting, all the books, and just get an idea of how things are going. Because when I, I mean, it seemed like everything was just on a rocket ship. We were working mm -hmm. so hard, we were getting units out. But, you know, really, I had no idea how we were doing because we were hot. You know, when you hire, you know, 70 more people, and you know, you only ship 50% more product, you know, how can that work out unless you're getting some other, you know, in, mm -hmm. you know, infusement of cash. So it's, there's, there, there was a lot of, you know, questions that I had that weren't answered, but I just continued to work thinking, Oh, it's going to work out. And it didn't for me, but you know, it did for a lot of them and I'm glad for that, you know, but it's just that, you know, you really, you need to ask questions about how the company is doing and, you know, be honest because, with yourself and, you know, the, the, your pocketbook, because you really, 
we work for these places and we depend on them for our you mm-hmm. know financial well-being and you know it's uh how it's run and how things are going is you know important to know and the whole thing with the acquisition and other stuff i felt like i was in a complete blind spot and i felt mm-hmm. like i had put myself there just because i was working so hard was the was the company culture sort of secretive or do you think if you had asked those questions would would the founders have been receptive to giving you more information Everyone was very forthcoming until the acquisition. How long had you been working there when those first sort of talks of an acquisition? Um, almost two years. Up until that point, you know, I'm at a, a startup right now where we, we frequently talk about sort of that exit strategy and, and other startups I've been to as well. You, there's often like this sort of culture of like where the founders are sort of hinting at, oh, maybe three years down the line, we could go public or two years down the line, maybe we'll be big enough for someone to acquire us. Up and up until in those first two years you were there, were there any sort of talks along those lines? No, there was. See, we we were scrappy little startup shooting for IPO. So okay. uh, up until you know when I had started, we were you know going to do our own thing and forge our way ahead. And so then, how did you first start to hear these rumblings about being acquired? Well, it first kind of started when we had this uh, kind of big company meeting. And uh, one of the, we had grown and had a couple, almost uh, over three times as many people there as when I had first started. So a big company meeting, everyone and CEO and the founders and everyone is, you know, very happy to announce that, you know, we have a, this very big interest from, you know, a very respected player in, in, in our market. So, and, you know, we were going to entertain this because it would really help us build products faster. So that Mm -hmm. was how it was kind of uh, framed for us was that, oh, here's a a company that can basically solve a lot of our, you know, manufacturing um, problems with, you know, a giant war chest. So maybe maybe you don't have to go to Home Depot to buy the air conditioning unit anymore. Maybe you can afford like more, more equipment. Exactly. Exactly. So did initially, wasn't there a lot of excitement within the company over that? Absolutely. We, you know, we were like, great, this is, you know, you know, this is going to solve a lot of our small little headaches so that we can work on the high level problems. And, you know, then we can, you know, we'll we'll have minions to, you know, do all of our bidding (laughs) and we can just, you know, you know, all of the stuff that we, you know, don't like to do, we can just say, hey, shovel that over. And then, you know, we can work on fun stuff all, all the time now. So it was, I mean, it was, there was a lot of excitement after the first announcement when did like the excitement start to lessen when did people start to get more concerned as time progressed basically and a lack of information came out of the situation so it's like as more and more time passed and less and less information you know new information about how things were going you you would expect you know news about you know such a big event disseminated to you know us you know of course but you know, it just didn't happen. So the the less and less information and the more and more time that passed seemed to, you know, kind of be an ominous, you know, stroke for, for everyone. So was the, was the concern then that just the acquisition wouldn't happen at all and that then the company might be in trouble or what, what you know, there often talks about maybe an acquisition is going to happen and it falls through. What was the concern about this potentially falling through? There wasn't much concern about it falling through because, I mean, we were still making product and shipping products. So 
as far as we all knew, our balance sheet was fine. And the, the, you know, the acquisition was just going to be pure gravy. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, kind of the fog of war uh, that surrounded the entire, uh, you know, acquisition that was going on kind of made it a very, you know, exactly. We didn't know what was going to happen. So, and it wasn't that, you know, we were afraid that, oh, we're all going to have our jobs shipped to, you know, South Korea or something like that. It's just that, you know, what, uh, where and how the structure of what we'd be working for, under what divisions we would be, you know, and, and just kind of the specific, you know, nuts and bolts of how, you know, our company would be integrated into, a, you know, a much larger organization. So, right. So just a lot of uncertainty about what your role would, would look like. Right. Got and it. everyone so, was very comfortable with, you know, our startup, very flat organization. We were moving into a very hierarchical type of, you know, big place. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about, you know, what kind of the future looks like. At what point did you start to think, well, maybe I should start looking to, to go elsewhere? So, well, there was one kind of uh, specific thing where there was a day where they brought over a bunch of people and then they interviewed everybody. So like, uh, someone from the potentially acquiring company came and interviewed current employees? Yep. And so it was almost like you were re-interviewing for your job then? Yeah. And that's when I immediately felt like, oh, no, something bad is going to happen, happen to go down mm -hmm. because... It's it's it tingled all of my spidey senses. Mm -hmm. And how long how long was this after the initial announcement? I would say maybe two and a half, three months, some somewhere in that time frame. And so you're you you, you get told like oh you have to sort of essentially re-interview for your job. Who what what did your interview? Oh no, like? they didn't say anything like that. Okay. They just said oh you know the people from you know these people just want to come and talk to us. And, okay. <laughs> you, you know, and that was how it was kind of framed too. It was like, oh, they just want to have a conversation with us. Okay, mm -hmm. great. Let's have a conversation. And then it's like, this is an interview. Oh, so what? Oh, okay. <laughs> so you're, 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 you, you're, you get set up for a conversation with these folks. And then during the course of that conversation, you re you, that's when you start to feel like, oh, this is really an interview. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so afterwards, did you talk to your, like, how did your other colleagues feel about this? They were like, well, you know, we'll see what happens. With the startup mentality, there's almost kind of like a, you know, casino shoot for the moon type of mentality. So it's like, well, you know, all my chips are down. Let's, let's see what the table, go, uh, see what the table does. So. Right. Like, let, let's let it ride. Like it may end badly, but I still wanted to see how it ends. Yeah. I got to see, I got to see how it ends. You know, I put in this much time and effort, so I just got to see it through. Mm -hmm. Okay. But for, for you, you, you start to get a little anxious at this point. Yeah. And then you know, what, what happened after that? Um, you know, I just started, I went to a headhunting agency and I mean, it was just, you know, cause I, I didn't see anything good happening from that. Cause I just, if there's that, and what keyed me off to it was that, you know, the interviews and it's just like, well, if, if we're going to, if there's going to be an acquisition, then, you know, the management, you know, they have all of the, you know, you know, they could look at all of the paperwork. They can look at all the employment paperwork. They could look at my resume as I gave it to them, as, you know, when I was hired, they can look at all of this stuff. Why do they need to interview me? So it's because there's a fundamental lack of trust between the, you know, people that are acquiring and, you know, the company that's being acquired. So I just sensed that 
you know, lack of trust and, a, you know, a, a, that kind of nitpicking accounting that they were going to be doing by, you know, interviewing everybody was just a, you know, just a very bad sign that, of things to come. So you, you then start to actively, after that sort of interview, you essentially start to actively look for a job elsewhere. Yep. And then um, I assume then because you're not still working there, you know, 10 years later, you did eventually find something else. And is that at the point that you decided to leave? Yeah, yeah. I've, I mean, I got a really nice offer and, you know, it was, you know, again, close by and doing, you know, it was kind of a, a change of a, you know, market, but, you know, not a change of a career or anything. So it was, you know, same stuff, but, you know, different market. I couldn't get a straight answer whether, you know, you know, because when, when I got, you know, I got the offer and then I went into my, my boss and I said, you know, I have this offer. Can I be guaranteed that I'm going to have a, a job here, you know? After the acquisition, after the acquisition, you know, and, and in mm -hmm. the same capacity doing, the, you know, the stuff. And then basically my boss, you know, one of the founders said, you know, I have to be really honest with you. And that's, I can't promise you anything. So, I mean, I just kind of took that as thanks. You know, I, 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 I was sincere, like, although it was bad news, I mm -hmm. sincerely thanked him for his honesty. You know, it's just, he, again, and I, I hold everyone there in the highest regard because they were some very, you know, very smart and honest people. So w when you went into that conversation with your manager or you know, this co-founder, were you hoping that he would, if he had said like, oh yeah, don't worry, you'll have a job, would you have stayed? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I would, I would have wanted to, stay. exactly. I, I was, I was hedging my bet. I was trying to force the situation by looking for another job and trying to get an offer. Got it. So it, almost like that was really just to, so you'd have some leverage and that you could get a straight answer. Yeah. And then if I didn't get a straight answer, then I would have my answer and then leave. Yep. And so then that, that was then your final decision to, to leave. Well, I, if, if there was any way for me to stay, I would have made the decision to stay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, you decide then to, to move on. How did your coworkers react? Everyone was really understanding. I mean, you know, they knew because, I mean, it had been months of, you know, this kind of uncertainty. So it's really hard to kind of a week of uncertainty. And I'm sure, you know, now with after a global pandemic that cannot be named, you know, I'm sure we all have a much more, you know, seasoned a few weeks of just having everything in about your, you know, your job and your future being, you know, completely uncertain. I mean, it takes a toll on your, you know. Your, your mental state. So mm -hmm. I really just wanted to end the uncertainty. Right. So I, by this point, it had been, it had been how long from the initial announcement? Um, it was about, yeah, between three and five months between the initial announcement and when I left. Yeah. So that, that, that's a quite a bit of time of uh, not knowing sort of what your future is going to hold. And do you know, like, were any other colleagues, you know, they, you mentioned they were all understanding, were other people also leaving at this time or were they, the rest still deciding to try and stick it out? Um, yeah, it, there were several people that, uh, uh, went and stuck it out. Um, there were several people that, you know, uh, you know, moved on. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, 
a, a great deal of the team, you know, after the acquisition, you know, made the, you know, made a great transition and have been, you know, working there ever since. So, you know, some made it, some didn't. And the ones that made it really, you know, quite, made up quite well. Got it. And so, so when did the acquisition eventually happen? Like how long after you left did it eventually get finalized? It was very quickly after that. So it was um, uh, within two weeks of my leaving. So oh, wow. I, I, it was, I, I don't want to say that I was the bellwether goat, but, you know. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, you know, looking back, would you, knowing that it was only two weeks after, would you have stuck it out just to see what happened? Or are you just glad that you, you know, you got a, you got a job that you were happy with and you had that stability? I got so lucky. I, I mean, I, I, I really, I'm glad I left when I did. I, I, I mean, I heard from friends about, you know, after the acquisition that kind of, it wasn't so pretty. So at the moment mm -hmm. that I left it, you know, everyone that I, you know, had formed, you know, really good friendships with was still there. And it was like, it, it was like, you know, my last day there, you know, although it was really hard, it was really great because we sat, you know, we probably hung out and drank beer in the shop until midnight and played video games and, you know, just had a, a real nice, you know, last, last day together. Right, where maybe after the acquisition, like where there were more kind of hard feelings about people who who weren't brought on to the next company. Yeah, there were some pretty some hard feelings about RSUs. There were some hard feelings about who went and who stayed. You know, who didn't get to go, and not so great stories, but you know, some great stories. All right, so so Al, if you could have gone back into a time machine when you're you know, you're, you're talking to these three different startups and you you chose GTSI. Uh, would you have done anything differently? Would you would you have chosen one of the other two companies instead, or do you, knowing what you know now, would you have still gone to GTSI? I would. I would have. Yeah, no regrets. I would have gone with GTSI in a heartbeat because you know it's it was a great story, and you know it's a it, I learned an incredible amount. Ongoing saga of what happened with the founders and the some of the stories in the media and some of the, you know, legal troubles have been really, you know, I've been reading, uh, been able to read them with a, you know, a level of insight that most people don't have. So I, I don't regret anything. And I would have taken that job again. And, you know, in a heartbeat, even though, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all sunshine and roses. It was, you know, some hard times, but, you know, I think, some of the uh, uh, some of the conflict that we overcome, you know, really kind of defines us as people. Right, and and, and no job that I've ever been to is all sunshine and roses, anyways. That's why it's called work, right? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Al, thank you so much for joining us today and for telling us about your experiences. Well, thank you guys for having me, and yeah. Best of luck with your podcast. I really enjoy what you guys are doing. So keep up the great work, guys. Wow. Another amazing episode of Tales from the South Graveyard. Stephen, what was your big takeaway from today's? The thing that I really took away from Al's story is that kind of bittersweet ending of you think there's going to be this happy ending where, hey, we're about to be purchased by a, a, another company. This is going to be great for us. This is going to be really great for all of our, our wallets and for the company. We're going to really be able to make this company uh, or these products that we're working on really grow and be successful. 
And then there was that awkward period of just kind of the purgatory of waiting, which I don't think is common usually with acquisitions. Usually the way I understand acquisitions is the employees are the last people to know that an acquisition is actually going to happen. And they only know after it's finalized. Right. Cause um, you don't want to add, you want to, you don't want everyone getting anxious about this potential acquisition. So, and we see an Al, like he had a lot of anxiety, anxiety about it. So it makes sense why you wouldn't want to, to let people know. Indeed. And I think the, the very strange part is the, you know, I think of this as very similar to the, the Bob's in office space of where Al is kind of re-interviewing for his job again, which is a very awkward and strange situation to be in because you've been there at the start of the company to help build all these things. You know more about the company than the people interviewing you. And then all of a sudden you need to re-interview for your job, which is, I have to imagine, never a good feeling. I haven't been in that situation myself, but it has to be very strange. Right. It almost makes you feel like, well, of course they don't want me. Because if they wanted me, they wouldn't make me do this, go through this process again. Exactly. What about you, Jake? What was your big takeaway from this episode? Well, I, you know, I also had a, a, a feeling of a cinematic uh, experience uh, when Al was talking about being on the roof of the building. Um, and it just reminded me of the scene in, Sa- in Shawshank Redemption when... Um, you know, they get a they get to like tar the roof, and at the end of the week, they get to have some ice cold beers, and it's like the best week uh, of their time in jail. And I just felt like the way that Al was talking about it, like the camaraderie with everyone there, being outdoors, uh, looking at you know all the other you know workers in 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 the downtown, you know, having to go to their jobs and to their offices, and just being free. And it just felt like such a a nice moment. And I think you know probably most of us in our jobs, a lot of it is drudgery, but there are every now and then those experiences where you know, you're just hanging out with your colleagues and you have that, like that nice moment of, um, you know, feeling connected with them and like that you're, you're getting this job done. And then, and then truly at the end, you often have an ice cold beer as well. So uh, that just really, it made me feel like um, that, that, that scene out of Shawshank Redemption. So we have the two extremes for Al. Yeah. Uh, going office space and Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, and I have to say with the, the Shawshank uh, Redemption story, I think the important thing to remember, although it wasn't necessarily a direct happy ending, you know, it's kind of a mixed, it's very bittersweet in the sense that he built all these great relationships. And realistically, at startups, most likely they're going to go out of business. But the thing you can take with you is the relationships you build, which I think Al definitely did there, kind of meeting all these really smart PhD people that, you know, you don't really get to interact with except at GTSI, kind of this unique experience. And truly, you know, making sure uh, you have to meet these people, befriend these people. And of course, they might not all work together at the same part now, but they, you know, they always have these shared memories together of this awesome time when they're all working on the roof, solving very strange infrastructure technology problems. Now, you know, Stephen, before we talked about wanting the rule of three, and I thought of a third movie that kind of goes uh, with Al's uh, oh, journey perfect. here. And that is in the movie Cocktail, the Tom Cruise uh, classic, there's a line about how all things end badly or else they would not end at all. And so I think Al's story sort of fits that bill. And with that, so concludes another episode of Tales from the South Graveyard. 